Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. In today's special rambling on the TARDIS, we are going to be doing something a small bit different, but kind of the same, as we will be reviewing the first official Doctor Who spin-off with K9 and Company. While there is no Doctor to discuss, we will be discussing the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so as always to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, X and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now, Paddy, if you would, please recap K9 and Company, a girl's best friend. I will gladly do so. At night in the English countryside, a group of robed people take part in an occult ceremony in the ruins of an old monastery. They chant Hecate, the name of the ancient goddess of magic. As a priest and priestess, both wearing a ram's skull, say a prayer as they throw a picture of an elderly woman into a fire. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by a young man. Elsewhere, at her country home, renowned virologist Lavinia Smith, the woman in the photo, and her friend Juno Baker discuss Lavinia's upcoming lecture tour of America. She tells Juno that she was initially meant to go on tour after Christmas, but has to go earlier due to a colleague on the current tour becoming sick. Juno jokes that the rumour in the local village of Morton Harewood is that she is being spirited away as revenge for a scathing letter she wrote about the practice of local witchcraft. Lavinia brushes off the idea, and Juno says that her business partner in the local market garden, Bill Pollock, will be happy that she is gone as it will give him free reign over the business. Lavinia says their assistant, George Tracy, is the one who really runs the business. As they talk, a pair of movers have been taking her boxes out to a waiting van, but she tells them to leave the last one, as it was left for her niece, Sarah Jane Smith, who she has been trying to contact before she leaves. She tells Juno that she is meant to be arriving next week, after she collects Lavinia's ward, Brendan, from his boarding school for his Christmas break. The following week, Sarah Jane arrives at the house, and she is met by George, a surly middle-aged man, who tells her of Lavinia's early departure. He gives her the key to the house, and tells her where to find him if she needs help. Sarah Jane goes inside and finds a phone and checks to see if Lavinia sent any messages to her work while she was away. She sees the packing crate in the corner and goes to look at it, finding a note left by Lavinia, which says that the crate came from their old home in Croydon. The doorbell rings and she answers it to find George's son Peter, who was sent over with some tea. The phone rings and Sarah Jane says goodbye to Peter to go answer it. She finds on the phone that it is Brendan, who says that he got tired of waiting to be collected and is at a local train station. She tells him to wait for her and she'll come and collect him. After she collects him, Sarah Jane asks if Lavinia gave him any message for her, but he says that he's just in the much of the dark as she is. They make their way back to Lavinia's house, where they are met by Bill and his dog Jasper. He tells them that he has lit a fire for them, and that he has been living in the east wing of the house for the last year. They discuss his and Lavinia's market business, which he says has been very poor for the last two years, and could lead to closure unless things turn around. Brennan begins to speak about the science of agriculture, but Bill cuts him off by saying that experience and common sense are the only way to run things properly. Sarah Jane says that she's happy to leave the running of the business to him, and then asks if Lavinia left any messages with him. He says that she didn't, and suggests to Sarah Jane that she check with Lily Gregson, the local postmistress, to see if Lavinia sent any messages from there. Just then the phone rings, and Sarah Jane goes to answer it, where she is greeted by Juno, who invites her to a small get-together at the house later that evening. Bill then departs, and after she leaves, Sarah Jane and Brendan open the crate to discover a canine unit inside. As they examine it, the robot dog activates and introduces himself as Canine Mark III. Sarah Jane asks where he came from, and he says that he is a gift for her from the doctor. Sarah Jane asks how he is, and Canine says that he doesn't know, but says that the doctor left him at her home three years previously, 
with a message saying that he sends his love and that he will always remember her. As Sarah Jane finally remembers her old friend, Brendan continues to marvel at K9 and asks some questions about his components, impressing Sarah Jane with his technical aptitude. Sarah Jane asks K9 for advice on how to proceed with her queries about Lavinia, but he isn't able to provide an answer. She says that she will go to investigate at the local post office and leaves Brendan and K9 to continue their technical discussions. At the post office, she is invited by Lily for a cup of tea as she is closed early for the day. Sarah Jane asks about any messages left by Lavinia, but Lily says that she hadn't seen her for nearly two weeks, commenting on how unusual that was. She suggests that Lavinia was absent-minded due to her academic nature, but Sarah Jane disagrees. Lily then turns the conversation to Sarah Jane's work as a journalist and mentions Lavinia's letters ridiculing witchcraft and the upset it caused among some of the locals, who still maintain a superstitious belief in it. Sarah Jane then asks to send a cable to Lavinia. Back at Lavinia's house, Brennan queries K9 about his knowledge of horticulture, and K9 says that he is an in-depth repository on the subject. Brendan asks him about soil analysis, and K9 says that he will need a sample first. Brendan tells him to wait whilst he goes to the vegetable patch near the house to retrieve a sample. Unbeknownst to Brendan, he is being observed by George. He returns to give the sample to K9, who finishes analysing the sample just as Sarah Jane arrives back from the post office. She tells him that she was unable to find any news about Lavinia before saying that she is going to accept Juno's offer. At Juno's house, Sarah Jane is introduced to her husband, Howard. Juno reassures Sarah Jane that Lavinia will be in touch, saying that Lavinia has a tendency to sort her business out first before doing anything else. She also tells Sarah Jane to relax, noting that she is being a bit prickly. Sarah Jane apologises, but Juno sympathetically says that she understands. She then introduces Sarah Jane to a man named Henry Tobias, the editor of the local newspaper. Henry tells her more about the letter Lavinia wrote, in which she claimed to have evidence of black magic rites being performed, but he says that he doesn't think any harm came to her. Sarah Jane suggests that maybe he shouldn't have printed the letter in the paper, but he says he thought it would be an amusing article for the people to read. Howard then appears and says that he needs to leave, and Juno goes to see him off. Henry suggests that Sarah Jane contact Cornell University for an update on Lavinia, and then gives his business card to her as well. Meanwhile, back in Lavinia's house, Brendan hears movement in the corridors and goes to investigate it, thinking that it might be Sarah Jane. He is attacked by George and Peter, who try to restrain him, but he is rescued by K9, who stuns Peter with his nose laser, which causes George to run off screaming. K9 tells Brendan to tie up Peter whilst he takes off in pursuit of George. Peter wakes up a few moments later, and Brendan asks him why they attacked him, but Peter pleads with him to take Sarah Jane and leave Morton Harewood, saying that it is there in great danger. Brendan is then distracted by the sound of breaking glass outside and he goes to investigate. He finds K9 near a shattered greenhouse window, which broke after K9 accidentally knocked a ladder into it when he encountered a garden gnome. Brendan leads him back to the house and assures him that it wasn't his fault. When they get back, they discover that Peter has managed to escape. Shortly after, Sarah Jane returns and they relay the assault to her. Brendan says that he didn't see who the second attacker looked like, but gives her a description of Peter. Sarah Jane says that there isn't much that they can do about it now, but says that they should make the, sure the house is secure. Elsewhere, George reports the attack to the priest of the cult, saying that K-9 was Hecate's familiar and how it killed Peter. However, he is amazed when Peter arrives safe. The following morning, Sarah Jane and Brendan find George and Bill covering the broken greenhouse windows. Bill asks if they saw a large dog about, which he says is responsible for the damage, but Sarah Jane says that they haven't. She tells him about the attack on the house last night, and Bill asks if Brendan could identify the attackers. Brendan says that he can, and Sarah Jane says that she is rang for the police who will be sending someone over to take a statement. 
They then turn their conversation to the allotment, and Brendan says that the soil seems to be too alkaline to grow anything well, but George retorts that the soil pH level is variable in different parts of the grounds. He then storms off, and Bill says to Brendan that there is more to agriculture than science. He tells them of a brief hailstorm that occurred right at the start of the apple picking season that caused several thousand pound loss in damaged produce. He then spots the police approaching, and Sarah Jane and Brendan go to speak to them. At George's house, he demands to know... Sorry. At George's house, he demands that Peter kidnap Brendan and bring him to the house. A tearful Peter says that he might get caught, but George says that he knows that he wants to get caught and says that Hecate will seek him out for revenge if they betray her. Later that evening, a tired Brendan bids goodnight to Sarah Jane and K9 before going to check the doors to ensure that everything is locked up. As he checks the back door, he is kidnapped by Peter. Back in the library, Sarah Jane finds some books on witchcraft and falls asleep reading them. She wakes up the next morning to discover Brendan missing and the phone line cut. She says that she knows who attacked him and takes K9 with her to the George's house. They find it empty, but K9 tells Sarah Jane to leave him there and collect him later that night. She agrees and then stores him in one of the cupboards. Sarah Jane goes to the local police station and reports Brendan's disappearance and states her belief that Peter is involved. Bill suddenly appears and tells her Peter was given a suspended sentence six months prior for housebreaking. The police sergeant, whose name is Wilson, informs her that Peter has been reported missing by his father. Sarah Jane angrily demands to know what is going on, citing all the strange events and disappearances. Wilson says that they will put out a general alert and advises her to wait by the phone, but she storms off by saying that it isn't working. Bill follows her out and she demands to speak to George. Together they head back to George's house but find it still empty. Bill says that George usually visits his mother this time every week and says that they just need to wait. Sarah Jane then says that she will go back home and catch up on some work, and Bill says that he will report her issue with her phone line and come to her if he hears any news. Later that evening, Wilson goes to George's house and demands to know where Brendan is. George refuses to tell him and says that he needs to be gotten rid of in order to protect the cult. Wilson says that they can't kill Brendan, but George says that they can't risk angering Hecate. Wilson reluctantly leaves, unaware that he is being watched by Sarah Jane, who is hiding nearby. George leaves a few moments later, and after he goes, Sarah Jane goes inside to retrieve K9, who tells her of Brendan's impending death. She puts K9 into the car and then follows on after Wilson, who she discovers dead a few minutes down the road after seemingly falling off his bicycle. Later, Sarah Jane reports everything to Bill, who finds it hard to believe that George and Wilson were both part of the cult. She says that Wilson died of shock, and Bill asks what the police said when she told him about what she heard. Sarah Jane says they didn't believe her, and he says it's not surprising, but he assures her that he does believe her, and says that they had better go to George's house. They find it empty, and Bill says that the best thing they can do is wait to start their search until morning. He says that they should go back to Lavinia's house and lock it tight to prevent another break-in. Meanwhile, at the ritual site, George, accompanied by Henry Tobias, pressures Peter into helping perform Brendan's sacrifice in order to initiate him into the cult. The ceremony starts and the masked priestess invests Peter into the cult whilst the other members chant the goddess's name. The following morning, Sarah Jane goes to Juno and Howard and tells them that Bill has also disappeared. She says that he never turned up to the house and when she went to his home, she found all the doors open but none of his clothes were missing. She notices their sceptical looks and they try to tell her that there must be a rational explanation for everything that has happened. Howard says that Wilson died of a heart attack and that Sarah Jane possibly misheard their conversation as she was outside when they were speaking, but Sarah Jane denies any sort of mistake. 
At an impasse, Juno suggested Sarah Jane go home and rest, telling her that Howard will find Bill and get her phone fixed, whilst Juno will send the local doctor to check in on her later. With no other choice, Sarah Jane thanks them and heads back to Lavinia's house. Sarah Jane returns to find K-9 scanning books and vents her frustrations about the situation to him. K-9 says that he has been reading up on occult practices, and he says that the sacrifices were performed at the winter solstice in order to ensure a good harvest. Sarah Jane says that the solstice is tomorrow, and K-9 asks to see a map of the area. He identifies all potential ritual sites on the map, saying the ceremony has to be performed on hallowed ground. Sarah Jane then says they can start to all of them, but K-9 says that the solstice technically starts at midnight that night. The phone then rings, and Sarah Jane answers it to find Juno on the other end. Juno says that she and Howard are worried about her and invite her to dinner. Sarah Jane, wary of the coincidental timing of the call, politely declines and Juno says the offer is still there. Sarah Jane and K-9 then leave to start searching for the ritual site. The search proves to be fruitless until K-9 notices a smaller chapel on the map and says that there is one on the grounds near Lavinia's house and they rush to it as midnight fast approaches. As they rush to the chapel, Brendan is led to the sacrificial altar where he is drugged by the priestess so he won't resist. Sarah Jane and K-9 arrive at the ritual site and K-9 stuns the priest and priestess just as they are about to stab Brendan. The other cultists flee as K-9 fires all around them, but Sarah Jane manages to knock out a few, including Henry, as they try to escape. She goes to make sure Brendan is okay before unmasking the priest and priestess, revealing them to be Bill and Lily. A few days later, Sarah Jane and Brendan are finishing Christmas dinner at the baker's house, where Howard tells them that all the cultists will be in court in a few days. Sarah Jane apologises to Juno and Howard about her belief that they were part of the cult, but they laugh it off. The phone then rings and it is Lavinia, calling to wish them a Merry Christmas. Sarah Jane goes on the phone to her and says that she will explain all the communication confusion to her when she gets back. She then starts to tell her about K-9, who is wearing tinsel and a paper Christmas hat whilst attempting to learn We Wish You a Merry Christmas. End of the story. So that was the rambling for a not quite a feature length episode, but it's like, yeah, it's like 50 something minutes long. Yeah, about that. Yeah. It's a kind of an indication for what the revival era would be like to do. Mm. Or for some sure. of Colin Baker's run. For sure. But, but anyway, that's for all for the future. For now, though, the present. And as always, with the present, we have the trivia, which mainly speaks about the past so <laughs> <laughs> the air date for the story and yes. past was the 28th of december 1981 the writer is terence dudley uh terence actually wrote several doctor who television stories as well uh, none of which we've discussed yet so we'll discuss mm-hmm. his work more in four to doomsday black orchid and the king's demons terence dudley sadly passed away on christmas day in 1988 Aww. which is very sad um, the director of the story is John Black. He also directed the Doctor Who story Keeper of Tracking, and he's also the director for Four to Doomsday. So we'll see his work again at that point. Mm-hmm. Where did the show fucking come from? <laughs> it's probably a question a lot of people have. And it actually ties back to something we mentioned when we were talking about Legopolis. John Nathan Turner really wanted Elizabeth Sladen back. Right. Originally, he wanted her back at the TARDIS because. She was like a ratings darling. We talked, you know, back, you know, at the height of her run with Tom. Like, they were getting the highest ratings the show had ever gotten. And Jonathan Turner wanted that magic 
back, mm -hmm. basically. So he originally wanted to have her um, come back in Legopolis. Um, and that contract is what eventually led to Janet Fielding coming on board. Um, he would have preferred to have Sarah Jane, you know, be that transition from Tom Baker to Peter Davison. And then to, you know, stick around for a series of 19, basically. Um, mm -hmm. But Liz had no interest in doing that. She didn't want to come back simply to play the same role and function that she had left several years before. It just wasn't for her. She thought it was a bit weird. At the same time, <laughs> JT was trying to figure out what to do with K9. Because they decided to get rid of K9. But the dog was very popular with children. And you know, there's a lot in that. Um, so he was like, how could they do that? And so he ultimately decided that a child-orientated spin-off series with K9 might be a good thing. Because then they mm -hmm. have less technical problems than like, you know, space planets with K9. But it would still be, you know, targeted, primetime television. It'd be great. The show, however, would need to have a human lead. And his main person was Liz Sladen. He pitched it to her um, that it would be a departure from what she'd be previously done. I mean, yes, she would be returning as Sarah Jane, but she would do so as the heroine, not as the sidekick. And Liz found that interesting. The idea of returning to Sarah Jane several years later, but on Earth, having her own stories, doing her own investigation, maybe leading more into you know, her journalist roots and stuff like that, rather than just being the companion on mm. off-road journeys that she wasn't particularly keen on. Originally, the show, as presented to Liz, was meant to be called Sarah and K-9. Then it changed to being called Girl's Best Friend. When Liz received the script, though, the show had been renamed to K-9 and Company, and the pilot episode was being called A Girl's Best Friend. And Liz was not happy. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah, she goes through like uh, in her book, she has like an entire chapter dedicated to this, and she goes to the fact that like you know Jonathan Turner courted her for months. He really wanted her on board, um, with anything, and then obviously this is the thing that he came with, and suddenly like and he was like, "You're amazing. This is for you. It's gonna be a great you know opportunity for you, great platform for you," and suddenly she's like, "And suddenly I'm the companion." Like mm. I'm, I'm a companion to a dog, like I'm and company. What is that? Um, she did have other feedback on the script as a whole. There were several things that she thought that Sarah would never say or that were completely out of character. She provided that feedback and was assured by John that it would be worked on. But when she got the shooting script, it was literally the exact same script. They changed nothing based on her feedback. The original plan had been to shoot during the Doctor Who summer break. Um, but at the time, Liz was filming Gulliver's Travels, which we've mentioned before, is amazing. Highly recommend. And so filming had to be delayed until November. I will say that in her book, Liz, <laughs> Liz describes first reading the script on the set of Gulliver's. And she was like, um, the only thing that took my breath away was Lady Flimnock's corsets. <laughs> <laughs> just like oh god so yeah so i was supposed to be filming in the summer they were now filming in november um the witches or the cult members uh used masks which resembled goat heads as you mentioned which is weird 
Uh, and to be honest, the whole use of Hecate was kind of weird. Um, goats hold absolutely zero significance to Hecate whatsoever. Mm. Uh, the main animal associated with Hecate is a dog. But also, like, Hecate has zero influence, really, on British history and culture. Like, I mean, the only thing you could say is, like, maybe Hecate, like, gets mentioned because of, like, the Roman influence in Britain or something. But Hecate is more Greek than Roman, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, no, no, she's she's primarily a, a Greek goddess. I don't know if she was adopted into the Roman pantheon when they kind of slightly nicked yeah. and revamped it. And even then, I don't think she... See, this is the thing is that, like, we've had one druidic story, like, mm. or pagan, you know, and that was the Kaliak. Mm. Like, and she, like, they even said, like, that the Kaliak was also another name for the Morrigan. Now, I know mm. Morrigan is kind of a more of a warlike goddess than anything, but it it is very, and also just the whole thing, is it Hecate or is it Hecate? Mm. Uh, that's the other thing. But like, I always thought it was kind of weird. That they, yeah, it, it, it's like they literally went through Goddess of Magic and just plucked one at random. Also, if I'm... No, my timelines are probably just a bit off. But, like, we're not that far off of Satanic Panic time. Yeah. You know, so I'd say what they did was they took all... Like, like what's the type of shit for the occult? Like, oh, fucking goats, black cows as you said, like, mm. which, which goddesses' names, and just mishmashed it together. We're also not that far off, possibly in the same year, as Clash of the Titans. Yes. I don't know if Hecate gets mentioned in Clash of the Titans. She, to my best of my knowledge, she, knowledge she doesn't, because... But it could have put the Greek no... thing in mind. Yeah, possibly. Quite possibly. Um, anyway, shouldn't have been a goat, should have been a dog. Yeah. Um, Liz also had a couple of issues with John Black, the director. Uh, she found his direction to be flat and lifeless. Again, she mentions in her book how Jonathan Turner was on set, particularly on location with them, which isn't usually, usually the producers doesn't go on location. Jonathan Turner was on location and she kind of felt that John Black didn't push back against J&T whenever he could have. Like, regularly like you know black sort of seen that he was under pressure cutting corners i'll get to one of them in a minute and he just didn't work well as a director according to ian sears who played brendan um he wasn't respected on set which if you've got jonathan turner in the wings sort of questioning your every decision i can understand why mm. and he was given the nickname john gray which is a bit sad um for the nighttime shoots of the ritual scenes they went on for ages during filming um and there's a couple of things so the cast who was you know going around in the circle saying hecate 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 at one point changed it to equity 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 <laughs> which is the uk actors union basically the uk version of sag uh and basically their hint that like equity would not be happy with the conditions also, poor Ian Sears was wearing this really flimsy outfit. Mm. He was frozen. 
so between takes the actors like the extras who had the torches would come over and huddle around him to keep him warm <laughs> I'm like yeah this would have made much more sense filming in the summer um, yeah. than it does filming in November um, interestingly um, A Girl's Best Friend is actually the first Christmas themed Doctor Who universe special as opposed to it being a regular episode that had like something just sort of tacked on such as the Feast of Stephen in the Dyke's Master Plan this was like the story was set at Christmas, was being aired around Christmas. It was about Christmas, um, which predates the by a quarter of a century the tradition we now have of the holiday special. So mm. this was actually the first official holiday special that was the entire story. Now, granted, this entire story was one episode, but it was a longer yeah. episode. So yeah. Uh, many Doctor Who fans will remember this show because of its opening titles. Uh, the opening theme music was weird. <laughs> it's, ver- it's very Knight Rider slash Airwolf. Yeah, so it was produced by long-term Doctor Who enthusiast and record producer Ian Levine. Um, both the theme music and the title sequence have been ridiculed over the years. It is weird. Um, Levine, who was also like the unofficial continuity consultant for Doctor Who in the 1980s, he said in an interview that the music was intended to be an orchestral score, but was instead arranged directly from his electronic demo without Levine's knowledge. Also, um, the <laughs> the lovely John Leeson was asked to come in to record the theme tune. And he's like, the dog is going to fucking sing. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> but it was just him saying K9 over and over again. To, to, to the beat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing about the opening credits is that there was no plan for them. So like in terms, so we had the music, which is one thing. But in terms of what we see on screen, there was no shooting script for the opening credits. Um, Liz literally just turned up on set one day, was asked to bring some of her own clothes which was weird. They spent a lot of budget on Sarah Jane's clothes, like, in the main story, but Liz was asked to bring some of her own clothes for this. Um, and she was just told, oh, we're doing the credits today. But she's like, there's no script. What are you doing? So they were playing it by ear, which right, is very now, obvious when you watch it. Just to give people a context, okay? I, I, like, I've got to describe it to you. I've got to play it here. I'm going to okay, I, I'm going to tell you, visuals. first of all, what it's, what it was meant to be. So, okay. John Nathan Turner, on the day, told John Black he wanted to be like heart to heart. That was, that was the vision they were given. Hmm. And what we get is... Right. English countryside, canine. Just in a fucking field. Then we field. Know, no, 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 just in a field. Then it's Sarah Jane sitting on a wall reading a newspaper. Randomly. Then it's back to K9 in the field. Then he's on the wall, extending his nose laser. Then it cuts to a roadside English pub where Sarah Jane is having a glass of wine while also on a typewriter, contemplating the wine. Back to K9 in the field and then on the wall. Then it's Sarah Jane jogging in sportswear down a road 
then back sitting on a wall with canine on the wall then she's driving her car then stops looks pensive canine is in the middle of the road back to her on the wall back to her in the pub back to her running back to in the car back to canine on the wall back to Sarah Jane again getting into the car it is a it, horrendous opening credits because I, the problem is that like at one point, like when they were filming this later, I was like, okay, so some of this is weird, but like the the car, she, okay, the zooming car, I can kind of get a nice transition. Even her jogging, she was like, cool, I can kind of see that. But they record the jogging sequence, and John Black was like, that's fine, but can you slow it down because you ran out of frame too quickly? <laughs> and she's like, then fucking pull the camera back. Do you have any idea how it is how, how hard it is to jog slowly? <laughs> It is, it is the weirdest title sequence. But but ever. but I, I'm sorry. The te- the theme music is fucking brilliant. I <laughs> love so the it, Like like I said, like I'll get into it more later on. But yeah. like it's sad to read Liz's thoughts on this show as a mm-hmm. whole. Mm-hmm. But if you're just watching it on its own. It's fucking like it, the opening theme is just like it's there was ideas there. Yeah. They just didn't follow through enough with any of them to make it work. Um, one thing that Liz mentions in her book as well is that there were some safety issues on set. Um, specifically, the scene where Sarah Jane's car is nearly hit by a tractor. Liz didn't even mark that in her script as something to be concerned about because obviously she wouldn't be driving the fucking car because the car nearly gets hit by a tractor. Mm. So Liz was sitting on the coach having a cup of tea when someone came to get her. It was like, Liz, we're ready. And she's like, ready for what? Like, oh, to do the car scene. And she's like, I'm not fucking doing the car scene. What are you talking about? And John Black wanted her to do it said oh it's fine it's going to drive down the road and then you're going to just swerve up onto the bank around the tractor and back down now Liz generally doesn't drive I think I mentioned this before I think when we were talking about robot I mean Liz doesn't drive or didn't drive rather um in her personal life she occasionally had to drive for work stuff so in robot in this in Star Jane Adventures she'd later have a iconic car um but she generally doesn't drive herself and so she was like, she didn't feel comfortable driving a straight fucking line. Never mm. mind this stunt with a real fucking tractor that could have crashed into her. So she basically said no. After her misadventure in Wookie Hole, when she nearly drowned, she was like, nope. She was unwilling to risk it. She put her foot down, said, nope, I'm not doing it. In the event, they, in the end, they did get a stunt double to do the dangerous part of it. But she was not happy that they were asking her to do it. And she saw it as them trying to cut corners and save money. Which also goes back to the intro sequence where clearly they were trying to cut corners and save money. Also, in case anyone's wondering, no, Liz did not receive any fight training or proper fight choreography for the rescue scene. So Sarah's weird, like, sort of half-assed karate fucking thing was just Liz doing It... It's like a really bad actor with high professional stunt people. <laughs> yeah, it's like the end. Basically, of she read it in the script and she thought, "Oh, this is great. Going to have like a couple of days or a couple of hours of you know fight training. This will be really fun." No, they gave her nothing. Um, 
I mentioned the show went out on the 28th of December. It wasn't meant to go out on the 28th of December. Because if you think about it, having K9 singing We Wish You a Merry Christmas three days after Christmas mm-hmm. is a bit weird. Usually the things that end with We Wish You a Merry Christmas happen air before Christmas or on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do those things air after Christmas. Um, the show was originally meant to go out on the 23rd of December. But two weeks before, for some reason, it got bumped to the 28th of December. So this moved it from one of the highest viewing days, you know, the day before Christmas Eve, you've got a lot of people, you know, going home, gathering whatever, to one of the lowest in the lull between Christmas and New Year's where no one has a fucking clue what day of the week they have. Mm. Despite that, though, the viewing figures for the pilot were very strong. They got a viewership of 8.4 million. That's 8.4 million people in the UK tuned in on a random day between Christmas and New Year's to watch K9 and Company, the Doctor Who spin-off pilot. It attracted more viewers than the average Doctor Who episode did during John Nathan Turner's run, John Nathan Turner's run as producer. It was more popular than the other seasonal special that came out of his era, which is The Five Doctors, which only got 7.7 million. So this pilot of Sarah Jane and K9 got more viewers than five doctors together, which is crazy. Mm. And what is also to be considered is so it didn't go out on the original date. We don't know weird lull day in between. And also there was a blackout at the Winter Hill transmitter station, which meant the northwest of England didn't even get to see it. I think that's like, Jesus, that's like the first time a blackout like that has affected the show since An Unearthly Child. Yeah. So, like, like if you think about it, <laughs> 8.4 million people yeah. on an off day between Christmas and New Year's, with the northwest of England not even seeing it, hmm. still got 8.4 million. So, that pretty much is Sarah Jane and K9 are a bigger draw than Pertwee, Troughton, the first Doctor, because it's not Richard, it's not mm. uh, Bill Hartnell, the first Doctor. Unfortunately, the not possible Tom. promise of Tom. I don't know what the, the promise possible promise like of Tom. And Peter Davison. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Which makes it all the more mind-boggling the show did not go to series. Which boggles the mind. It has the highest ratings of the last few years. It's you know, 8.4 million is really high. Mm. the reason for this is that there was a changeover in channel controllers at BBC One so Bill Cotton who had approved the pilot and who was very keen on the idea he left soon after Christmas and he was replaced by Alan Hart who just did not like the idea and so further episodes weren't commissioned which was a big blow to Liz and John and Ian Sears, who obviously this would have been, you know, a full show for him as well as Brendan, um, because Jonathan Turner was presented to to them that like getting a series pickup was just a formality, and a couple of weeks later it was like no, it's not happening, whatever. Despite that, though, despite the fact that we do, we never got a full series. Canine and Company is acknowledged as a canon event, hmm. right? This isn't like. 
downtime or some of the other like unofficial like spin-offs that we will see over the years this is acknowledged as, as part of the doctor who continuity as part of the doctor who timeline because even in 1983 in the five doctors K9 and Sarah Jane are there mm-hmm. K9's presence is not explained at all <laughs> so it's like if you didn't watch the spin-off fuck mm-hmm. you we're not going to explain it to you again because why would you and decades later, when we have the revival, we have Sarah and K9 Mark III in School Reunion, and then on to Sarah Jane Adventures. Doctor Who franchise would not attempt another TV spinoff until 2006. So 25 years later, mm. they attempt to do another spinoff, and that spinoff is tortured. Let's talk about our cast. So as Sarah Jane Smith, we have, obviously... The wonderful Elizabeth Sladen. And as K9, we have the amazing John Leeson. Mm-hmm. As Brendan, like I said, we have Ian Sears. Um, had K9 and Company been commissioned as a show, he would have been a regular cast member on the series. This wasn't just intended for him to be a one-off for the pilot. He was intended to be there. Um, he later starred as Alan Lipton in the 1983 BBC drama Johnny Jarvis. He was 18 years old when he filmed K9 and Company. Um, so obviously like if that had gone to series at 18 that would have been fucking mm. amazing um, he now works in America as an editor Juno Baker is played by Linda Polin Polin mm, Polin I'll go, go Polin I'll go Polin um, her non-who related credits include Blackadder 2 Theatre Night The Bill and Albion Market Linda passed away in 2009 Howard Baker is played by Neville Barber he played Dr. Humphrey Cook in the Doctor Who television story The Time Monster. His non-Who credits include Vanity Fair and Anna Karenina, and he passed away in 2002. Bill Pollock is played by Bill Fraser. We previously discussed Bill when we saw him as General Grugger in the Doctor Who television story Megalos. George Tracy is played by Colin Jevons. He played Damon in the Doctor Who television story The Underwater Menace, and we discussed him more at that time. Peter... You made a face. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I was going to say Underwater Menace uh, is getting a updated anime or an updated animated DVD release, I believe. I know. I have it pre-ordered. Ooh. Yes, of course I do. Because <laughs> you, you get to watch the, the, the fish ballet in, in fucking animated form. Uh, Peter Tracy is played by Sean Chapman. He has no other Hooniverse appearances his non-who work includes hellraiser a mighty heart and hellbound hellraiser 2 lily gregson is played by Gillian martell uh again no other hooniverse credits for Gillian. her non-who credits include cousin bet the handle of basketballs and the lady of camellias and she passed away in 2020 you were going to say something about sean chapman uh if i because like i was like i think i know him from something and i was like if it is hellraiser then I just need to make sure that he is who I think he is. Sorry, one second. Yeah, uh, he gets fucked up in that movie royally. As <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sergeant Wilson, we have Nigel Gregory. No other Hoonabas appearances from Nigel. He also appeared in UFO, Blake Seven, The Invisible Man, and The Playbirds. And lastly, as Aunt Lavidia, we have Mary Winbush. She didn't appear in Doctor Who or any other Doctor Who related media. But her non-who credits include All Creatures Great and Small, Zed Cars, Casualty, Jeeves and Muster, and Oh, What a Lovely War. Mary passed away in 2005. 
So, thank you so much for the trivia. You're welcome. We'll now bring it back to the present with our thoughts. <laughs> and we will discuss... So, the, we, I've broken the characters into something slightly different now. So, there are heroes, prominent mm-hmm. characters, and then there are the villains. Okay. So, um, I the thing the ones that probably are worth most discussing are Sarah Jane, K-9, Brendan, Juno Baker, maybe just the Bakers as a unit, because mm. I also have Howard Baker, uh, then Peter Tracy, and George Tracy, and Bill Pollock. Is there anyone else you think that we should add to that? Should we talk a bit about Lily Gregson, since she was the other big reveal in that scene? Well, she was the other big reveal, but I, but she has like two scenes prior to the big reveal, and I didn't think okay. it was... Because I don't think she as a has the same level of impact as the because like Pollock, yeah. yeah and I like I was like going like if we include Lily then maybe we have to include Sergeant Wilson but again it's the same thing it's two scenes it's nearly not a whole a lot of insight oh, into yeah. the people I was just thinking because she is one of the big face reveals at the end oh yeah oh yeah I, yeah like I, that's why I was like thinking should we but then it's like you don't really get a whole lot of anything from her to to like everything about the cult comes from Bill and George. Hmm. So, you did the socials. Plus, mm-hmm. if you didn't even do the socials, it's Sarah Jane. I think it's only fitting you go first. <laughs> oh, okay. The first thing I have to say about Sarah Jane in this story, her clothes, though. Like, okay, so first of all, there's the clothes from the, like, <laughs> the fucking... Sarah's jogging boozaton of the West Country. Yeah, but, like, her clothes in this are really... I think there's a reason I'm mentioning her clothes because day because this story takes place over like four days, four or five days. They're, they're, they're day one, so when we first see her, she's wearing this multi fucking layered pantsuit thing with a cape and a this thing and a that thing, and she kept taking off layers and it looked different. And she put on like layer one, but not layer two, and like her outfit just kept looking different. Like I'm convinced half their budget. Went on her fucking clothes. <laughs> Probably. But then we also have her in like tracksuit bottoms. So <laughs> what? Which is like she goes from like really sort of like, you know, high end for the time clothes yeah. down to tracky bottoms because she's going to go yeah. wander around at night. It, it's, 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 like, I, I, she, it's like she's doing a Rocky cosplay. Mm. Um, a couple of things we learn about her from the introduction. The like introduction, the the opening credits um she likes wine while she's writing mm. she exercises regularly mm-hmm. she's also a lunatic who uses a typewriter outdoors like no <laughs> like all for like having your best glass or whatever when you're writing something but like indoors sarah indoors where the pages are not likely to blow away <laughs> mm. um a couple of interesting things to see you know with sarah here you know, she's still very much independent. With a couple of extra things, there's no thoughts of having a family. Like, you know, mm-hmm. she says to Brendan, I'm not going to play mum to you, which is a bit harsh. Um, But a lot of these traits are traits that we see carried over to her at the start of the Sarah Jane Adventures. Mm. Very much very similar characterization here to what we see in the Sarah Jane Adventures. For people, though, who are used to her bubbly nature from the end of her time with Tom, like we talked about when we were talking about Hand of Fear, how she'd kind of regressed 
in a lot yeah. of ways. She was a lot more fun and outgoing and juvenile in a way. Um, this Sarah Jane may come across as a bit of a shock. And I can see why Liz would be reading the script kind of going, uh, okay, not only is this a different character, but she's swung very far in other direction. Mm-hmm. She's much more serious, focused on her work, and a bit cold on first meeting mm-hmm. people. Um, so she's more in line with the way she was in Time Warrior than the way she is in Hand of Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can sort of headcanon a lot of that away. You know, she had to come back to Earth. She had to reacclimatize herself. She had to rebuild her career and blah, blah, blah. So you can kind of headcanon it. And as I said, this was mirrored in the revival return where she's like, you you left me behind, you left me in Aberdeen, all this kind of stuff. I do miss Andy Pandy overall, Sarah, though. <laughs> um, I do miss her. But we get everything here that we love about Sarah, though. She's investigating, she's standing up for herself, she's standing up for other people, taking shit from nobody. Hmm. And even though I didn't mention this in trivia, like Liz Sladen had no idea who or what K9 was. She didn't watch Doctor Who after she left. All she knew was Tom had worked with K9. And in her mind, if Tom had worked with K9, then she could do it. Yeah. Not knowing until after when she met with Tom that Tom fucking hated the thing. <laughs> so it might have paid her to bring him beforehand <laughs> and Possibly. get a bit of input. But in saying that, I think the Sarah Jane K9 dynamic actually works really well. She works mm. really well off the dog, remember? And I chalk a lot of that up to Elizabeth Sladen because it's very hard to act opposite K9. Yeah. Particularly because even though John Leeson was on set, he wasn't saying his lines out loud. So she did her first line and then she turned waiting for the dog to say something. <sighs> and she felt like a bit of a dope. But then no mm. one had told her. Like, she didn't work on Doctor Who with the dog. Yeah. She didn't fucking know. Um, but, like, you know, you have to drop down to his height in order to be in frame with him while he's talking. You have to lift him in and out. You have to hold doors open for the dog mm. to get through. All of which is very trying as an actor. But I think Liz actually did it really well. Because at no point does it come across as she's forgotten the dog or... You know, she forgot the needs of the dog or whatever. She's very much, and this is, I think, again, I give all credit this to Liz, but Sarah Jane very quickly adapts to having this robot companion. Very, very quickly. Mm. And she trusts it because it's a gift from the doctor, and why wouldn't she? Um, I do love her, oh, doctor, you didn't forget line. I, mm-hmm. It's very sweet. Um, Overall, I think it's I think it's actually a really good Sarah Jane outing. And I think as the bridge between Hand of Fear and School Reunion, this story works better than what I remember of the Five Doctors, but it's been years since I've seen the Five Doctors. Mm. But yeah, how about you? What do you think about Sarah Jane of Ram Uh No, like I actually pretty much agree with everything you said, like because you can tell that she's had to face the realities of life outside the Tardis like coming back like it's been three years since she uh, yeah it's been like well yeah i think at the time it was like the three years since yeah so this story is set in 1981 yeah and apparently k9 has been in the attic 
at Croydon since 1978. Yes. And I find that funny because Lavinia's like, oh, it's been gathering dust in the attic. Like, you were in Croydon for a year before you moved here. <laughs> you were in the attic yeah. for a year, Lavinia. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, no, like, because you can tell like, that she's has gone trotting the world, doing the deep in uh, journalism. And like, she's probably covered some uncovered some unseemly truths mm. and that would probably tend to jade the experiences like because even like i suppose if you think back to her time with with the doctor like when especially with tom's doctor outside of think tank there was no real kind of contemporary-esque villain she ever had no. to face so like coming back and after experiencing like yeah, like the horrors of the universe, but also the amazing stuff that she obviously saw in between, and then going back to the fucking harsh realities of your own time, that that would leave you jaded a small bit, like mm. or leave you a bit fucking hard hard edged. Um. So yeah, like that slight standoffishness that she has is like, well, no, it is a slight standoffishness that eventually goes away the more she warms to people, because mm. like she she does kind of end up. Maybe not muttering, but kind of like uh, like being an almost aunt to Brendan in yeah. that regards. Um, and I know I completely agree. I love her dynamic with K uh, nine. I think it's really really good. Remind me, she and John were actually good friends. Herself and John Leeson. They became really good friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she loved yeah. John. Yeah. The person. She fucking um, hated the dog. Yeah. And like <laughs> to to your point about. You know, we're seeing this Sarah Jane at the start here is very reminiscent of Sarah Jane at the start of uh, Enemy of the Bane? No? Invasion of the Bane. Invasion of the Bane. Thank you. But I actually think, and I don't know whether it was intentional or not now, mind you, but I think you can also include the character arc of Sarah Jane through the Sarah Jane Smith audio series. Yeah, because, very much so. Because. Like clearly, this story and this characterization is canon. Yes, and people treat it as such. Yeah. So, like, if you think about, like, she has this kind of peaks and valleys of a fucking dynamic because at the end of this, she is a bit more easygoing, hmm. which kind of does tie into the start of. Um, Comeback, the first story for Sarah Jane Smith series, yep. where she has her friendships with Juno and Brendan and Natalie as well, and mm. how she's she kind she kind of fairly quickly takes Josh under her wing. Sorry for uh, people that are mm. we we will eventually cover this. We but have recommended it fifty million yes, fucking times. Yeah. <laughs> but then if you get to the end of the Sarah Jane Smith series, and like. Mm. We we've kind of headcanned the how that ends. Mm. You can take that ending, and you can kind of say, yeah, she's gone right back to where she was at the start of Canine and Company again because mm. of her experiences through that series have left her jaded again to the real world shit. So it's better to just isolate yourself from people. Um, so yeah, can't wait to cover that. I really really can't wait to cover it. Uh, but anyway, no, back to here. It's a really really good, like. For anyone that hasn't seen Sarah Jane before anything, I think I think it's actually a really good inside introduction to the character. Mm. For those of us that have seen Sarah Jane, 
if you if you just look at what the character has come from, what the character is going into, it makes a hundred percent sense why she is like this at the start and then coming into it. It may take you back a small bit, but you just have to put yourself into her shoes for a few minutes and it goes back to it. But in terms of the Sergene that we know and love, it's all still there. Like her investigation skills, her ability to schmooze people a bit, shall we say, Uh, and her, in heavy quotation marks, her version of Venusia Nikito. (laughs) I need to check something. When we break before the overall thoughts, I need to check something. I think the novelization does that way better, but I need to double check. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, like it's, it was great to see her back because it just had everything that we liked about Sarah Jane. Mm. Like Liz, for someone that, as she, as she said, like, you know, she stepped away from it. Like she didn't stay in tune with the, the show. She went off and she tried other new things, but she came back and she hadn't missed a beat. Yeah. She really hadn't missed a beat. Yeah. Very, yeah. So yeah. Great version of her. Then we have K9. K9 Mark 3. Yeah. <laughs> so another regeneration as such of mm. K9. Um and again, I'm gonna keep mentioning the Sarah Jane Adventures and stuff because like I said, this show is canon to the development mm. of Sarah Jane Adventures. I love the the one upmanship that we see later with Mr. Smith is already here present in K9 Mark 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, because I, I, he has this sort of like little bit of one-upmanship with brendan <laughs> yeah it's just really funny but um, i think that's like i think that's just innate in all of the fucking canines yeah um i actually really like canine mark three because he has some vulnerability that the other canines don't mm. and it particularly comes across when you know brendan brings him back inside and he's like apologies garden gnomes weren't in my database <laughs> so like k9 who should be able to very slowly chase people down and shoot them and detain them and whatever got tricked by a garden gnome because he didn't know what it was like this k the like, k9 is not of earth k9 has all mm. this knowledge of all these different things but plonking him in contemporary earth is just like it adds a little bit of vulnerability to him mm-hmm. do you know and i kind of would have liked like i kind of i don't know if i would have i wouldn't i wouldn't have liked a scene where like i would prefer if it was brendan rather than sarah jane because sarah jane did quite well with the whole adapting to him but like brendan runs out the door and like closes the door and you have k9 being like fucker i can't open doors like yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> um However, he's still able to save the day. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, like I said, I think the way K9 is with Sarah Jane works really well. The collaboration, him viewing the map, him guiding her to whatever, him you know being the bestest boy. The one thing I think I do wonder is how was Sarah Jane going to explain to the police the cultist claims that a robot dog shot them? Because again, we're not used to seeing K9 in contemporary Earth. How the fuck does she explain that? Um very easily. 
they drugged Brendan into a stupor so that he'd be like a more pliant uh, victim. What's to say that they weren't fucking hopped up on something? So how did she knock them all out? Because he trip. stunned them all. So how the fuck did she do that? Yeah. I, no, but again, just a bad trip. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, I think K9 does really well in this one. I think as an introduction of the Mark III, I think it's really good as an introduction to Sarah Jane. I think it works really well. I can, however, see Liz's worries with him being the focus of the show. Mm. Um, because it becomes very... I think it becomes very children's television if you have K9 being the titular character and Liz is the human psychic. It becomes like the guys supporting Bosco or City or whatever the fuck, you know, like 80s yeah. children's TV program we're thinking of. Which, given the fact that K9, like, I'll, I'll discuss this more than all, this is not a program for children. No. Like, it's not for little children. I don't care what John Nathan Turner was aiming for. Um, so yeah, I think K9 did great. I am curious how they would have done future stories. How much K9 would have driven plot versus being a plot device. If that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. How about you? Uh, yeah, look, I really like K9 this one. I think K9 Mark Three is the most trigger-happy K9 that we've seen so far. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. Because, because <laughs> like, whereas like K9 Mark Two and K9 Mark One were very tactical in their fucking shots he is just prey and spray he just it's just fucking everywhere he's just causing as much carnage as possible um, K9 Mark 3 will protect will will attack <laughs> yeah <laughs> just fucking oh god um so I actually it, it just brings another point because I made an analogy based on what I watched prior to me watching this yeah. um but oh, John has done it again, and it's amazing that he's able to do this. He has instilled a different personality in this particular K9 unit. Mm. Like, yes, the one upmanship is still there, but as you said, there's the vulnerability because he's not familiar with the contemporary stuff. Like, he thinks the, the gnome is some sort of the, the, the potted garden gnome is like some weird fucking creature, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not in his like beast, bestiary or anything like that. Um, and he, my analogy was that over the weekend while I was at a family reunion, I ended up watching at night the first two Terminator movies. Okay. <laughs> right. And I was I was looking at it and I was kind of looking at Iris Washington's performance and then I was thinking about, oh, I was like, K-9 is like a weird Terminator because each of the Arnie models that come back have, because they're, they're all programmed differently. Mm have all different personalities, even though they're essentially the same fucking model, you know, even, even the ones that come back as protectors, they're all slightly, they're all slightly different. And which I think is something that's kind of underrated in Aaron Schwarzenegger's acting ability to fucking do that. Uh, so here we have John Leeson doing no, something not dissimilar at all with um, K9. He's instilled a brand new personality into one that I would love to see going forward and what his learning curve on a whereas like the other two were 
fucking flitting throughout the universe and time, this particular canine would be stuck. Mm. And I, I would love to have seen this canine's journey to what we see in School Reunion. Yeah, I'd agree. I now have in my head <laughs> the opening credits. So instead of being like this like techno whatever, it's yeah. like every time we see K9 it's like do 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 So you've got like Sarah Jane running and then do 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 just a K9 on the wall. <laughs> I just like the 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 K9 company does that fucking weird cross screen swerve that the Terminator yeah. title used to do. <laughs> Uh, oh. <laughs> he's got he's got the he's got the red eyes. <laughs> he does. <laughs> oh god. Cool. And so then we have uh Brendan. So Brendan, another proto Wesley in a way, yeah. you know, very similar to Adric in many ways, though obviously earthbound, so whatever. Um overall I liked Brendan. Except we don't get to know much about him. I mm. I'd love to know how he came to be Lavinia's ward. Because like Juno calls him her nephew, yeah. <laughs> Lavinia corrects her and says, "No, he's my ward," which I thought was a little bit cruel, Lavinia. Like, okay, um, and so you sort of get the sense that he should have like this sort of brotherly relationship with Sarah Jane, but it's yeah. kind of more of an aunt nephew relationship he has with Sarah Jane. But where the sibling relationship comes from is the sibling relationship between Brendan and K Nine. Yeah, like. A little bit of sibling rivalry, but also good collaboration. Like, he's so, like, enthused with K9. Mm. Like, and there's a couple of things that, in in the context of the show, don't really make a lot of sense. Like, the fact that Brendan's saying, like, oh, you've got, like, you know, this type of motherboard and this type of memory. K- Brendan shouldn't really know that because K9 is mm. meant to be, like, 53rd century technology or something yeah but on the show it works in the broader scheme of things it doesn't really make much sense but yeah in the episode it works um but yeah i think he's a really good character i mean he's clearly like a little bit of like your mind's so sorry the rebellious nerd in the sense that like he left school early Mm. because he got sick of waiting (laughs) he just took a train not knowing if anyone would be home um but also like i'm curious again to know more about where his wardship or his ward status came from because he's saying that he doesn't like his boarding school hmm. you know he wants to live at morton harwood he wants to live there and so he's like oh you're going to be sticking around maybe i can stay and go to local comprehensive here um which is a bit sad do you know what I mean like you know, he's clearly an orphan of some sort yeah, I'm just gonna take a and look there. And he's fucked off to you know boarding school. Um and you know, he comes home for Christmas. Lavinia's gonna be away again. Do you know? Like it's 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 very sad. I was kind of curious to see more about him. Um, but I think as an introductory story, I think he's really good. I say he's a little bit of the Wesley Crusher esque nature to him. Um but again, I think it's done quite well. Um, I will say as well, according to the special features, Ian Sears was saying that like Liz was very protective of him as well mm-hmm. on set. Um, but yeah, overall, I think for an introduction to a new character, you know, an Earth-based 
teenager like he's like what 16 years old i know the actor was 18 but i think brendan's meant to be like 16 17 probably 16 if he's still talking about going to the local comprehensive um i think it's a really good introduction how about you um so just before i give my thoughts on it i looked up just to see what he was like what his connection to Lavinia smith is Hmm. and it's it's fucking weird it's actually pretty much um luke he's an alien baby that his race gets saved by Anne travers and the brig but only back when he's a colonel uh but by the time that the species are saved he has taken on human physiology and can't revert so then he is adopts a, a human persona where the fuck is that from uh it's from two books the novelization of canine and company and another one called Moonblink. okay i'm gonna have to get those because i have never heard that before and yeah now, the, the, gonna, while you're talking i'm gonna go to my bookcase i don't know if i actually have canine and company the novel you keep talking and give your thoughts on brendan we'll do. i realize i've gone uh, away from the microphone so sound quality is going to suddenly be shit for that sentence go and look up cool. a book paddy talk all right um so can you still hear me first of all all right. Uh, so, yeah, as you said, he's another proto Wesley, so like another teenage prodigy. But I think, unlike all the other ones that we've seen in the show, which would be like Susan, Adric, and Vicky, he he actually feels the most childlike, especially like in this way that he thinks he knows a lot like you know more than like some of the locals because of the, his education and because of his own intelligence but he kind of gets brought back to reality by bill and george with okay yeah you may have like an academic knowledge or something but you also need like intuitive nature and you need experience and you do seem get kind of sulky over over that and it's out of all as i said the teenage prodigies we've seen in the show it is the most real to life childlike um so i like that performance of it i did like his uh connection with k9 uh i love the as i call it the jargon off about um what everything like you know like basically you've got this yes but you've got this naturally and it's just all like the type of shit that they're talking about and you can even see um him getting closer to Sarah Jane so that it it, it does become the, almost like that formulaic, you know, I was cold to you at the start, but the, the kind of Daddy Warbucks any type thing, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Also, I completely forgot, the very first time I ever watched this, back, which was like a week after I bought it for you, uh, I was convinced that this, at the end of it, for some reason, K9 was drunk. Because of the fact that he fucked up, we wish you a Merry Christmas. He just read the, he just read the words wrong and then corrected himself. But I was convinced because of the jaunty angle of his paper hat and the tinsel wrapped around him, he was drunk. <laughs> How he got drunk, I cannot answer. But I was convinced he was drunk. Okay, then. Um, I surprisingly do not have the physical version of this book. Hmm. I have the audiobook which is read by John Leeson. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a look online. I literally just, while you were talking, 
purchased the Kindle version for myself. Um, but I don't know if um, I can get the physical version. Uh, audio, audio, audio. No, there isn't a physical version. Well, not currently available. I may have to contact the Doctor Who shop and ask them yep. if there's a physical version. If there's a physical, yeah, if there's a physical version somewhere to be found, they will, they could have it because they've got a rake of shit. Yes, and also if there is a physical version to be found and someone knows where it is, message me and tell me, please. Thanks. Um, but yeah, no, Brian, I think he's a good character. I'm kind of glad we don't yeah. get to see more of him. Mm-hmm. Also, you just no, send me on the name of the other book because now I'm curious about that as well. Yes, I will send it on to you. Don't worry. So yeah, we're moving on to the prominent characters. And I have put down Juno and Howard Baker. We can speak separately or together. Mm-hmm. And then Peter Tracy. Because mm-hmm. I didn't think Peter was an out-and-out villain. No. I think he was more of a prominent character than anything. Yeah. So, the Bakers. So, mm-hmm. Juno Baker, I love her accent. Mm. I mean, yeah. It makes her total sussy from the word go. Mm-hmm. But I love it. She has this way of speaking, which is like, of course, darling, come over. And you're like, oh, my God, she's like, like, you know, big red herring around mm. Juno Baker. Um, but what I like about her and Howard is that even though they come across to us, the audience, as being super suspicious, they both do. Mm. Oh, yeah. They're actually the most normal people <laughs> in this story. It's just because we've met Lily Gregson and we've met Phil Pollock and we've met George by this point. And we know something's going weird and we saw that Juno was the last person to speak to Lavinia. They come across as weird because they're mm-hmm. nice and inviting and normal. I think, And like this is the thing now where it's like, all right, I can see and I can understand why a lot of people didn't have respect for John Black's direction on this story. I, I, I from listening to all the backstage stories, I, I behind the scenes stories, I understand it. But what I will say to him is that he did create a very good suspenseful, who's like who done it, who's who type scenario here, because up until the very end, you do suspect Juno and Howard just because of mm. the way that of how they give their lines and the camera the camera cuts very very good mm. but continue yeah but i think like you know they're not really fleshed out as characters we don't have that many scenes with them um but they're very interesting and again like it sort of comes across that like they have um the sort of there's someone in Sarah Jane's corner, mm. do you know, and she and she needs someone in her corner, um, and so it's nice to know that she will have that. Again, we know obviously from future stories that um, you know Juno Baker continues to be a good friend to Sarah until mm-hmm. you know, in later years or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think in this story they don't really contribute much. Like, there's one scene that's really weird, which is when Howard goes to the police station. Mm-hmm. And there's no one there. There's no follow-up. <laughs> yeah. He goes in, there's no one there, and then he leaves. And I'm like, okay. Like, 
Was that meant to keep us suspicious of Howard or what? Yeah, like it gives the only us purpose pr- it serves is to tell us the fucking time. Like you do get this impression like that, okay, is, as you said, is it meant to signify that more than more of the constables other than Wilson are actually in the cults and he's gone looking for because he knows Wilson like if he's a cultist, he knows Wilson is dead. So why go to the police station? Mm. Oh my god. Right. I just looked up there. Um, that book you mentioned, Moonblink, yep. is a Lethbridge Stewart book. Ooh. Um, which I have. I think did I get you a Lethbridge Stewart book for Christmas or did I buy it just buy it for myself? I bought it myself. for yourself. It's written by Sadie Miller. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Cool. You need to read it, girl. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's been added to my wish list in Christmas time. <laughs> 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 we can do it we did years ago and I'll get you the same book you kept me we're good yeah ex- exactly yeah. Um, but yeah so I think like the bakers are interesting but I don't think they contribute a whole lot to plot they kind of feel like they're there to be the red herring well, th- that's it like, they are they are just red herrings but I think um, go on no go on I was going to say like it's like yes they're red herrings but when you kind of like, after the red herrings are removed, you get to see what they are as people. Mm. And I like that because, again, I would have loved to have seen this show go forward. Because other than being like Doctor Who's version of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, just from their fucking way they act and their looks, like Juno is just a sweet woman who's trying to keep out in her friend's family. That's mm. the whole That's the whole thing of the story. Uh and it's like you, you get that suspicion like when she when she calls to Sarah Jane to the, the first drinks get together and then she hangs up and she just goes to Howard, she's going to come. And it's like th- that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if if you if you're gonna like say it as a, a friendly person, why so and so sinister? Um but yeah, no, maybe you strip that's it all just back. their kink. Maybe that's just the type of relationship those two have. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> I must have you right now, Juno. <laughs> Maybe they're um, sort of like the, the you know, um, Morton Howard's answer to the Adams or something. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. <laughs> um, and like, um, Howard as well. Like. Y- it's told throughout the story essentially that Howard is like Mr. Moneybags. He's mm. like the fucking, he is like the richest man in Morton Harewood, much to the chagrin of uh, Bill, Bill and yeah, a mm. few others. But you know that his wealth and his status doesn't actually go to his head because he treats everyone that he sees or everyone that he mingles with with respect, no matter yeah. who they are. So, like, while yeah, he's the most affluent man in the village, he's still a Morton Harewood boy at heart or whatever the case may be you know yeah and what I say so Bill Pollock makes a point of like oh you should stay away from Juno and Harold Baker because they're our main competitor Juno and Harold don't see it that way like no no maybe it's because they're so confident in their own farm they couldn't give a shit but mm-hmm. um, like in fairness to them they're very supportive of Sarah and like the fact that they even invite Sarah and Brendan around for dinner mm-hmm. it's like you know you kind of get the sense that Juno and Howard moved in a few years before Lavinia. Like they're blow-ins as well. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. 
and they had money and they bought up and they bought the best property and you know they're doing their the best work or whatever and then you've got bill and george who have lived in this neighborhood for their entire lives they're generational in this area you know they've been working morton harwood the whole time and then this other woman comes in buys it up she doesn't have a fucking clue she doesn't want to give a shit about the market garden mm-hmm. um and they're having to deal with with all of this and you can tell there's like obviously resentment there between them but that resentment goes in one direction only yeah yeah <laughs> and because... like juno and howard don't seem to have any issue with bill pollock no like, look and like, like the like he was oh yeah they're our biggest competitors yet Lavinia is fucking best buds with Juno yeah you know um but yeah I think they're they're like again I imagine they would have been like series regulars yeah had the show gone to series I think we would have gotten to see a lot more of them I like I sort of I don't know why but I got in my head that they're like I can't remember the name of the show which isn't going to help matters at all. But you've got a weird brain, so you may remember the show for me. Okay. Two couples living next door to each other. One very rich. Oh. One is this, sort of living, sort of by the lay of the land type thing. The good life, I think. Yes. If yeah. you took the two couples from the good life mm-hmm. and merged them into one couple, you get Juno that, and Howard Baker. Yeah. If you took the best yeah. qualities of both couples mm-hmm. and merged them into one and added a little bit of weirdness on top, you got Juno and Howard Baker. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy. <laughs> Just smashed them all together. Yeah. Uh, but then we have th- th- what I can only describe as the poor lost soul that is Peter Tracy. <laughs> yeah. I felt so bad for Peter. Like, Peter is clearly someone who made mistakes back in the day. Mm-hmm. And is now in the care of a lunatic cult. Mm-hmm. Like, they say, like, that he got in trouble back in the day. And, you know, he's now in, like, he's in the custody of his father, who mm-hmm. is, like, way more than everyone. George Tracy is, like, a couple of fries short of a happy meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter has to live with that, you know. And like, you know, George says to him, like, "Oh, you always wanted to be part of it, and now's your chance." He's like, Peter clearly wanted to belong and to fit in mm-hmm. with everybody in the neighborhood, but like, when he has to attack Brendan, when he has to later kidnap Brendan, he does not want to be part of this in the fucking slightest. And they kind of force him into it being like, "Well, what are what are your other options exactly?" you know we already made you attack the boy Mm. so if we tell the police that you attacked him you'll get put away again and it's like he's in this horrible no-win situation and he's he actually comes across like for all that like um brendan uses a a, a description form which i think is a bit culturally inappropriate now yes yeah it is where he says he's dressed like a gypsy Mm -hmm. um which may not bring to mind the same image now as it clearly did back in 1981. Basically, mm. he's a punky. Like he has like a leather jacket and whatever. He like what like the what it would have been then is what a modern 
Irish slash British traveler is yeah. at the moment. Yeah, but like, so he says he describes it a bit like a gypsy. Um, but he also looks a bit like punk. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you, like, mm. it was another way he could have described him if they didn't decide to go down the, the gypsy exploratory, mm. exploratory route. Um, but as it, you sort of get this sense that he's a kid who acted out in his youth, got into some trouble, and is now permanently stuck mm. in this position because his dad is a psycho. And is willing to turn him over if he doesn't do what he says. I was like, great, thanks. Um, and like clearly, like he didn't want to hurt Brendan ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And like so he comes across as actually quite a sweet young man who's just caught in this web that he can't get out of. And clearly, everyone in the village has an idea of him mm-hmm. that he can't escape either. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Any other thoughts on Peter? Um, so yeah, no, I agree that he's like the reluctant legacy pledge to this whole affair, you know, because mm-hmm. his dad wants him to be in the the cult, and like he does have like this outwardly rebellious nature, yeah, as you said, like or this outwardly at least appearance. Mm-hmm. But there's the scene where now he's meant to be about nineteen years old. Mm-hmm. And there's the scene where he's in the house and George is telling you, you have to kidnap him, you have to kidnap him. And he just breaks down, crying his eyes out. Yeah. And it got me thinking like that. There's, while, yeah, he's in his father's custody, I think there's a slightly darker element here that's over, that is, it's overshadowed by the whole cultish thing. Is that I, I think actually Peter is a victim of physical abuse from his father. I would say so. I I just get this vibe that George beats him regularly. Yeah. There's a reason why he was handed over into the custody of his father. Yeah. Because it was known that George could keep him under control. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, which also explains why he acted out probably in the first place. Yeah. And like you just end up feeling you feel sad for him like that's mm-hmm. that's the only that's the only thing throughout the entire thing like even when he's caught by brendan he tells them to get away he tells them to leave save mm-hmm. save themselves like he's putting himself at risk to save others yeah. and he's just like yeah he's a reluctant pawn in this whole thing and yeah so like you like he is we talked before about tragic figures and stories he's the tragic figure of this story yeah i'd agree I agree. Um, do I touch on Lily Gregson for a second just before we go in? Um, just a... like the thing I find interesting about Lily Gregson as a character is mm-hmm. I don't get her motive for lying to Sarah. Like I get the fact that you know Lavinia wrote an article, sort of mocking the cult worship in the area mm. and clearly that that, that that rubbed Lily Gregson up the wrong way but like is her whole, whole aim just to get Lavinia to fuck off I, like I, what was the point of not giving Sarah the messages so my 
impression of what was happening there was because the way that it's kind of framed, and I think it's actually this is a case of as I said, as much as like uh, there's some really good parts here, and like giving this air of mystery who done it. There's some really bad fucking editing and bad direction on this because, um. My impression of it was you're meant to believe that the guy falling sick was this result of like the fucking curse or whatever. Mm. No, my understanding of that whole thing was that they were trying to curse Lavinia so that something would happen to her as she was traveling to America. And I think Lily's whole thing of trying to stop Sarah Jane from contacting her would be bringing Lavinia back and thereby saving her. That was Mm. my guess of it. Okay. Like, I sort of got the sense that, like, the way they describe, like, the, you know, the the lay of the land and the fact that, like, different pHs in different places, then they described, the, like, the, the hailstorm that killed, that, you know, destroyed. And I was like, I'm like, are we meant to believe that that was the cult actually doing magic to get Lavinia to leave? Like, so, they don't like blow-ins. Juno made that very clear. They don't like blow-ins. And I was like, I, I just, I guess I don't, it's the whole, it's a whole thing that, like, I wouldn't say the plot depends on it, but it's the one, like, plot element that they never explain that the reveal of Lily Gregson as the other masked individual, because, mm. like, they pull off the her, her face mask. It's meant to be like, oh, it's Lily Gregson. Where you're like, mm. oh, it's Lily Gregson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Do you know? laughs> but, but but it was the same with, like, um, Henry Tobias, the newspaper editor. Yeah. Like, it, he's just there in a scene, standing right beside George. And it's like, yeah. there was no emerging from the shadows. And it's like, this story actually reminds me of two movies. One of which was actually before this. And I, I, I'm kind of surprised that there was nothing in the trivia about it drawing inspiration from it. But The Wicker Man. Mm. The whole thing of this, you know, paganistic belief that if we sacrifice, you know, like a, a perfect vessel or whatever, our crops will come good again, mm. despite the fact that no, you're living in a area that has horrible soil pH in various parts that you can't actually have a good crop yield, mm. like you know. So, and like maybe that's part of the thing of like the whole resentment of the bakers is that they actually managed to find a plot of land that is actually perfect mm. and it's like the whole that kind of shit uh the other movie then was like uh it just reminded me of hot fuzz there's <laughs> <laughs> like fucking you know, crusty jugglers um so it was like you know you're kind of surprised by oh my god all these people are fucking involved in like this weird <laughs> tiny towns cult um so yeah but like some of the there was obviously meant to be dramatics here for like the big reveals and it's like no, it's just like okay, we'll just have him appear in scene. Yeah. Well, then we it's have not Lily, it's just, just Prof another mask. It's not Billy or Lily Gregson at all. Oh my god, it's Jasper the dog on stilts. <laughs> yeah, so should we go on to our two main Yes bad guys? Um yeah. so we've got George Tracy and Bill Pock. Which one do you want me to talk about first? So Given my opinions on Peter's relationship with George, who do you think is actually the bigger villain in this? Story? Okay, so so we have the villain of the story, where I think the bigger villain is Bill Pollock. Yeah, 
And then we have Who's the Biggest Asshole, which, which is, is George Tracy. George, George Tracy. So, yeah, okay, we'll talk about George first, because the villain of the story is Bill. Yeah, so okay. George has the most sussy intro ever, because mm. they give him suspicious music. Yeah. When he comes into frame. <laughs> and, like, he's just uh, the typical country yokel afternoon. Yeah. Um. So, there's that. Um. Mm. Also, like, George is more than a bit tap. Like, he's a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. Mm. Um, and there's a number of things that tell us that. A, was the whole reason why he attacked fucking Brendan in the first place. Because Brendan took a soil sample. That was literally it. Yeah. That's what sparked off this whole thing with Brendan took a soil sample. Which again begs the question of what were they doing? What's the whole, like, what's the bigger plot, you know, to do with Lavinia and whatever, which never really gets explained. Um, so then they go and attack um, Brendan. But then, like, you are attacked by a metal box with a head that chased you and you describe it as a big white dog I think maybe the moonlight reflection from canine surface made him look a small bit white or something he's a grey rectangular box who yes is called canine but still this sort of farmer's view is that this was a big white dog. Now, this does tie back to the trivia point that where the sacred animal of Hecate is actually a dog. Yeah, but then also... <laughs> yeah, but like, that, that just can actually... I was just thinking about that. That kind of fucking makes things even more stupid because it's like, right, you you know that Hecate is holding his dogs. So we're, why we're are you goats. dressed as... Yeah, why are you wearing as a fucking goat skull? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, you could tell that he's more than a little tap because he sees this defense thing mm. and immediately goes big white dog Hecate's coming to get me da, 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 da. I'm like you my dear are so far off the deep end it's not even funny what makes him problematic though what makes him a bad guy is how that feeds his behaviour because like I said he attacked Brendan just because he saw Brendan picking up soil now, it was kind of sussy because Brendan was doing it in the middle of the night. But still, it's Christmas. It gets it gets dark at like six o'clock. Um, the way he treats Peter. Cause I don't know if you had this in your notes, but Peter comes back after escaping from the house. You know, argumentatively mm. well done, Peter. For mm. getting out of a school tie. <laughs> Kudos to you. And George's first reaction is, You've led it to us. Mm-hmm. Not, oh my God, my son is alive. He seems to not care his son is alive. Mm. All he cares about is that his son has now led this big white dog to his doorstep. And then when he later goes on about kidnapping the boy, it's it's just like, it's George making these huge fucking leaps and mm. dragging Peter along with him. Because inevitably, when it goes wrong, he knows he can just lay all the blame on Peter. 
Like, that's horrific. Hmm. I, mean, that, I don't know if you picked it up that way, but that's the sense I got because the way he threatened him later. That, like, George can kind of do whatever he wants so long as Peter's with him. Because if it goes wrong, he can just say it was Peter. Which is shit. What a shit way to treat your child. Yeah. I hadn't picked up on it, but now that you say that it actually does, it, it makes sense given his characterization. Mm. Um, because, like, yeah, like, you know, he's given, like, the stereotypical evil country villager intro. But about 10 to 15 minutes into this thing, you're realizing that there's a lot of subversion of expectations going to happen here. Mm. So possibly he could be the... Um, he could end up being the good guy. Kind of like, do you remember uh, the image of the Fendal? Like the, mm. the fucking, the old lady's grandson who we thought is like a sinister person, but he ends up mm. being like a helper. But no, like it's, as you say, like his entire superstitious belief in this informs his actions to, and how he treats people how and what he's willing to do to ensure the insane belief that all they're doing is going to basically give prosperity to their fucking small allotment. Um, and, but it's all, like, all of that is, so his whole participation with the cult and his, like, ruthlessness as part of being, the, as part of the cult is one thing, is one aspect he's a villain. But the other aspect is his treatment of his, his own son. Mm. His son is nothing but a tool and they do, and he kind of dresses it up with like you know you've always wanted to be in the cult you know you'll always be you know like you'll be just fucking almost like not like a messiah but it's your destiny to fucking join all this type of shit but at the same time when the minute peter shows any slight bit of reluctance or he does something that um what's the word basically causes any upheaval in George's plans or George's routine, it's he. You expect the belt to, to come off, you know. Mm. And like, I to your point there about you know, fucking Peter coming to the house and George saying you've got it to us. You you can play that scene in your head where it's like he goes for him and starts mm. to fucking give him a battering until Bill pulls him off. Yeah. And like, while he is the villain of the piece, Jesus, I'd say. Peter's fucking guardian angel in this whole thing is Bill because he's probably yeah. got a leash on George to keep Peter from harm. Yeah. Um, so it, it's an interesting dynamic. And like I said, hmm. you know, he's not the out and out villain of the piece only because he's not the leader of the cult. No. You know, but he's probably the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The most. He's the most, like, well, like, sadistic, villainous. He's the most zealous yeah. of the cult members. Mm-hmm. Quick to react, quick to jump to the next big step, you know, things like that. Like, the fact that, like, I'm trying to remember because I watched it last week. Like, is it George's idea to kidnap Brendan? Like, I don't think Bill told him to do that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's all George. Do you know? It's like, George is just leap- making these huge leaps mm. on his own. Which, like, is very dangerous. But, like I said, 
because he's not the leader, that's why I put Bill above him. You know, yeah. Bill being the architect. Yeah, he facilitates whatever the fuck this, this was. <laughs> yeah, he facilitates all this fucking bullshit. Um, yeah. because yeah, like we're going to Bill now, and yeah, it's your points first because yeah. like my thing with Bill and is it I touched this with Lily. Like first of all, like my first note on Bill was like because I was like you very presumptive person. Totally like I have to run in this place, and you can just put up with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he walks in without even knocking. Let's his dog run loose in the house or whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. Don't be, a, don't be a prick. Like you know she's here on her own. Don't be an asshole. I don't get his angle overall though. Like, why would he want the market garden to fail, or did he want it to fail? No, I think because I think like, he was actually praying for uh, prosperity. Yeah, but then you have like this dynamic then of. You know, clearly, like, what I gathered was that, like, the bakers, clearly, like, they have, they're prosperous. I imagine the reason they're prosperous is because probably they do all the stuff that Brendan was talking about. Mm. You know, using science to make the land workable and whatever. Yeah. And Bill Pollock doesn't. And it's like, I want it to be successful, but not with your modern science. Um... I was like, so he wanted the market garden to prosper. Okay, we can assume that with the ritual stuff. So did he not just not like Lavinia? Like, she wrote one article. And, like, so he he just didn't like her. And So, in answer to your point, I was like, the only thing that's going through my head is the Wicker Man. And, like, this, I, I have to think that there's some influence into this. And if there is, then they've completely fucking... I don't know, they just maybe misunderstood everything that was going on there. Because, like, here it's... They're using Lavinia's money to keep their fucking market garden going. Hmm. But I think they resent the fact that they have to rely on her money and it's still not working. And then they probably come around to the fact that they think her... Her, you know, uh, heretical arrogance not believing in Peckity or any of the local mythology is that's what's turning the fucking land bad mm. because you know she's not a devout follower and like as I said that goes back to the whole thing with the wicker man where like the fucking crops were failing and they thought it was like oh you know we need to fucking sacrifice because that'll get everything back and it's like no 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 like it's fucking science <laughs> like and it's again it's the whole thing of George even kind of calls it out. Now, again, my knowledge of that particular type of fucking agriculture like isn't the best. But it's like, okay, you know that the land that you're on has variable soil pH and cannot support everything that you want mm. to do. And you, you even kind of mock him over his whole thing of like, what do you suggest? We throw down a hundred, couple of hundred uh, fucking kilos of like ammonium sulfate to balance it out. It's like, Yes, clearly what you're doing, and like it kind of does tie into the whole religious angle, which is like, you know, okay, clearly you're you're practicing something here, and the results that you're hoping for aren't coming up. You've got to get two ways about it: either question what you're doing, or which is unfortunately what happens in a lot of cases, you just double down, you go harder on it. Yeah, 
Which is, the thing I don't get in all of it I'm, is the messing with Lavinia and Sarah Jane. Right, so, okay, they want to do the the sacrifice, but okay, whatever. But it's like, you know, we see at the start they're burning the picture of Lavinia. And like you said, you, you came up with the theory that like that was to have something happen to her while she was traveling. Mm-hmm. Okay. But why lie to Sarah Jane? Like, if there, if something does happen to Lavinia and there is an investigation afterwards, them lying to Sarah Jane about the fact that Lavinia tried to contact her makes no sense. Like, the whole premise of what happened to Lavinia, why isn't she answering the phone? It's clearly to make us, the audience, think they did something to her. But there's no point in Sarah Jane, like, okay, they make the phone not work. They lie to her about messages that were sent. Bill doesn't tell her the message that Lavinia gave her. Why? Like, I, that's the why I don't get in Bill Pollock's whole plan is what's wrong with Sarah knowing that Lavinia left early? Because everything you're doing is just making Sarah fucking suspicious. Mm. Like, if you wanted to hide what you were doing, you should have been there straight away with, hey, your aunt tried to send you a telegram. You clearly didn't get it. She went away early, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I mean, Bill's just lucky that Sarah couldn't get through to her aunt's agent. Mm. But like, which is why he was recommending that she does. It's like, I don't get that part. Like, I I get that from a fan, like, for, to us, we're meant to make them think that, is meant to make us think that they did something to her, that she disappeared without knowing. But it's like, but we know she didn't disappear because she was talking to Juno. Juno knew she was going away. Mm, like, like, is it to make Juno seem, I, I think that just whole bit was not, crafted very well no it's so build plan makes no sense yeah because you're 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 making a mystery out of nothing like Mm. you're making a mystery for sarah jane to solve yeah when there didn't need to be a mystery there for her to solve all that you really all that he realistically needed to do was tell her that lavinia left early okay i then if but but cut the phone line to the house so that if Sarah Jane tries to call her and scupper your plans by bringing her back, she can't call She can't call from the house. But and Lavinia then, knew nothing. Lavinia didn't know anything mm-hmm. of value. So, like, I, I just, it's just the one thing about his whole plan. Like, why not give Sarah Jane the message that Lavinia had left with her? Doesn't make any sense. Lily Gregson lied about telegrams going out. So, whatever. I was like, but why? You're making a journalist curious. <laughs> why are you doing that? That makes no sense. Do you know? Um, yeah. He's also a bit of an asshole. Clearly someone mm. who likes to throw his weight around. You can see that with the way he treats Brendan. Like, again, he's another character that, like, while he protects Peter Tracy in some respect, you could imagine him, like, if 
Brendan, you know, was more outspoken. And if Sarah Jane ever wasn't there, mm. I could see Bill Pollock taking a belt to Brendan, like. Oh yeah, or just give him a fucking wrap of the cane or something. You know? Yeah, exactly. Or set the dog on him. Yeah. You know, very much so. Um, yeah. So that was a bit of a ramble in relation to Bill Pollock. Is there anything else you mm. want to add? Not really, except for the fact that he's fucking sus throughout the entire fucking story. Like, mm. even even when he's being helpful, you know that he's being sus. Yeah, it's because of his. It's be, he gives the game away so fucking fast. It's like when he talks about the hailstorm ruining the fucking produce. It's like uh, you fucking tip the hand now too much, man. Yeah, like. You're you're practically saying I am a fucking I am a cultist. Mm. Um, yeah, like he's it's. I suppose like you're there to kind of like you know question the whole thing of like you know, oh, clearly science doesn't have all the answers, and it's and it's like that Brendan or not that Brendan that Daryl Brain thing. Well, science knows it doesn't have all the answers; otherwise, it would stop. <laughs> um, but yeah, like so, it's like. It's like this weird fucking mishmash of like, you know, you can clearly see that something's not right with what you're doing. Like, it's not working. And you've chosen the route of fucking doubling down rather than listening to. It's like, or like to them, like, is anyone that wrote a fucking book about agriculture, like, doesn't know what they're talking about? Mm. Even people that they know that would have potentially written books about agriculture. Ah, they're just full of shit because they put pen to paper. No. Mm. So, we're here to, I think this is quite possibly, is this like the first time we're ever going to give a score to a rambling? Did we score the Doctor Who movies? I'll check. I can't remember. I don't have it in our scored thing because we weren't tracking it. I'll go, I'll go and check. But, uh, but anyway, your thoughts first. So... So, there's a couple of things about this that I need to sort of make clear. So, you gave me this DVD ages ago. Years and years ago. And when I first watched it, I actually really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And then I watched it with the special feature, with the audio commentary on. And I'm not going to lie, the audio commentary kind of ruined it a bit for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Liz Clayton did not like it. Literally, the entire audio commentary is her criticizing different components of the story. So it's literally Liz criticizing every scene, almost every line of dialogue. Um, and I can understand why. You know, having read her book, I could understand why she is so critical of it. And even watching it, you could understand why. Like, she talks about how, like, most scenes are single lock camera. There's very few close-ups. There's very few two shots. Most things are told wide shot from one particular perspective, and that's it. Um, Which, for the 80s, is really slow. Um, You know, it's not quite, it's not really dynamic. 
Um, it's even less dynamic than Doctor Who. It's much more like Doctor Who of the 60s mm. than it is like, you know, the contemporary Doctor Who at the time. Um, however, I have also, I mentioned earlier, I have also listened to the audiobook. Now, I don't have the physical mm. book, as I mentioned, but I have listened to the audiobook. The audiobook is brilliant. There's stuff in the Target novel, which the audiobook is obviously not reading of, that goes into, it makes it more suspenseful. The, the fight scene at the end is explained a lot more. And there's just like, the way you would read it on the page is very different in many cases to how it's presented on screen. And I'm going to chalk a lot of that up to Jonathan Turner and John Black wanting to save money. However, watching it again, I didn't watch it with the audio commentary this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just watched the episode as is. I actually really enjoyed it again. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like, it's a story that, yeah, it has plot holes a fucking mile wide. I don't care. I don't, I don't care. It has Sarah Jane and K9, two characters I love, having an amazing interaction with each other. I'm gutted we didn't get a series off the back of this. Mm-hmm. Because I would have loved to see Sarah Jane with K9, Brendan off to the side, maybe not in every episode, but kind of flavour of the week with Brendan, you like each crops over again. Solving Earth mysteries. Mm-hmm. Not aliens, but Earth mysteries. And Hopefully not like Midsummer Murders, where it's like all murders happening in the same general era, because that would get really old really fast. Um, but like that would have been amazing. There's interesting characters here in Sarah Jane, K9, Brendan again. Like obviously that Lethbridge Stewart book came out well after mm-hmm. the um the 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 show. Like the book came out in 2016. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the yeah. story aired in 1981. Do you know what I mean? Um, but like, there's so much more that could have been explored there. You know, I want to see more of Lavinia. Like, she's not in a place long enough to lick a stamp. You know, which is a, a description later. You that or mm. she says Sarah Jane isn't in one place long enough to lick a stamp. Which in the Sarah Jane Adventures is a line that Sarah Jane uses to describe mm. her aunt. <laughs> um. And so like, I would have loved to have seen them have a scene together in the same room. Um, so I think all of the issues that I think Liz had with it, all of the issues I had with it, pacing, story structure, huge fuck off plot holes, characterization, could all have been fixed when it went to series. Yeah. Because 110% the story has great potential. Mm-hmm. Do you know, yeah. the spin-off has great potential. Hence why, A, it's remained canon, and B, the Sarah Jane adventures, which I'm just using the Sarah Jane at the moment because the Sarah Jane stories are big finish and big finish canon mm. is a bit weird. Yeah. But the Sarah Jane adventures was amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was, it really was. And it was successful and kids loved it. Um, I will say that, like I said earlier, Jonathan Turner said that he wanted a kids' program for kids. This is not a kids' program. Like, 
it's filmed very serious. Like the story mm. itself is quite dark, but it's filmed as if it was a serious drama of the week. Mm. You know, the, the Saturday night drama or whatever. It's filmed really serious. Like I said, a bit old school serious, but still really serious. And like the story in it isn't exactly like, you know, nicely, nicely. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's a bit fucking dark and they film it as such. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what like level it would have continued at you know with with follow-up stories but i think i think we were robbed i think we were robbed um in terms of a score i did give it a score when i watched it last week Mm -hmm. i gave it a four throughout the course of our conversation it has dipped significantly (laughs) and then it's come back up um fuck it i'm still giving it a four i really enjoyed it fucking huge gaping plot holes and all i really enjoyed it how about you? Um, so a couple of things. First of all, this is the first time we've ever given a score to a rambling. Mm-hmm. Two, I've just now realised that this is Doctor Who's version of Scooby-Doo. Yes, it is. Yep. Along with the reveal. It was Old yep. Man Pollock all the time. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I was like, just like it's old lady Gregson that you just hear one plate English for going. That's quite rude. <laughs> um, so there was that. Um, and yeah, the yeah, just like hands down, this would have. Oh yeah, like all these issues, teething issues would have come completely fucking had it gone to series. And it's like eight point four million people fucking tuned in to watch this, you know. Um, so that's all. That's saying something. Um, my thoughts overall on it, though, were here. One second. Let me pull up the old thoughts. Um, I'd nearly give it a five just for the intro alone. <laughs> that intro, I fucking love it. It's, it's so fucking. Weird. It's it's so fucking wonderfully, badly wonderful. Um. No, as I said, the story does a good job of subverting the expectations as to who's a member of the cult and who's not. Uh, does do an excellent job of it, but it just does a good job of it. Uh, mostly with the stuff surrounding the bakers. Um, <laughs> because like, when you look back at it, it's like, you know, just like there should be a neon sign saying, this is a red herring. <laughs> um... And as I said, it does feel like a unconscious trial run for the Sarah Jane Smith audio series. Because mm. like, even if you think about it, Comeback it does have like this weird fucking small town Scooby-Doo element to it. Mm. Um, what's Clutes Coombe? Isn't that, no, isn't that it? Yeah, Clutes Coombe. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I was like something, something. Or uh, yeah, so there's that. Um, and as I said, initially I, I had given it a score of like 4.5 because the major kind of drawbacks for me were like, Brendan doesn't have a huge impact other than being the verbal punching bag and an almost physical punching bag for, for the, the cultists. And then the reveals of the cultists were just like, ah, he's one too, as opposed to like this 
I felt like the reveal should have been like people emerging from the shadows or like someone in a car with Sarah Jane and then tries to fucking go for her, you know, with a fucking wrench or something. Mm. Um, but I have dropped it down to a four because of you're a bit more forgiving than I'm because of just how fucking stupid Bill Pollock is. <laughs> I can get away with this scot-free. But where's the fun in that? <laughs> clue, clue, mystery, clue. Red herring here. I was like, for fuck's sake. Um, yeah, so like, no, like just, just a really good sense of atmosphere. Like, really fucking spooky. Um, and then there's the, whether it be intentional or unintentional, darker component of Peter Tracy being the actual victim in this whole story. Yeah. So yeah, I I knocked it I knocked it down to a four. Hey, fours across the board though. Yeah. Oh, it's fucking. It's been ages since I think we've like well ages. Well, like what are the scores on the doors that we've the last time where we were completely in sync about something? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're. I think I think we're like oh, you're point five or point two five off of each other. Sorry, Dan, I have my. Oh no! Keep her tra- not, that, not that far. Keep her tracking. That's the last time that we were fucking in sync on something. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have my thing open because I haven't needed yeah. to. It just um, feels like ages because of our infrequent recording schedule, which is unfortunate. But again, we apologize because sometimes work and social requirements and also sickness <laughs> comes hmm. into effect. Yeah, I. Okay, I have downloaded the um, audio, or not the audio, the Kindle version of the book. Nice. Uh, and I'm just looking through um, the sort of <laughs> the climax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just trying to see if they describe Sarah Jane's uh, fighting style. Um. Uh, in a very niche comment, she fights like Steven Seagal runs, arms flailing everywhere. Her leap into a neck kick disposed of one member of the coven, and a two-way flailing hand chop dealt with two more. That that as the description of her fighting style. Uh, before she was overcome, fighting ferociously, she was born into the circle. And her three paralyzed victims were dragged into the hallowed area after her. So yeah, uh, her fight still in great in this either, <laughs> <laughs> which is a flying kick to someone's neck. <laughs> but yeah, but listen, um, this has been a departure from the norm. You know, mm-hmm. different but kind of the same. Sad we don't get a series out of this. But this isn't the last we'll see of Sarah Jane and K9. Mm-hmm. Um, we will at some point need to figure out what we're going to do with the Sarah Jane Smith series because we said that we did want to do it. We need to figure out mm-hmm. how, you know, whether we do it at the end of Sylvester's run um, after Do- th- the Doctor Who movie. I think after 
uh, the Doctor Who movie. Yeah, so we might take a break after the Doctor Who movie and do the Sarah Jane Smith audio series before jumping into Chris Braxton. But mm. that is a very long ways away. Tis, tis. We need to get through Peter Davison Colin Baker's first one before falling in first. So, uh, n- not next week? Not next, next week, week, the week after. We will start We will start the new Doctor with the start of the spooky season. Geese, geese. And Peter's first story is... Castrovala. Geese. So until then, mm-hmm. bye-bye. Bye. Bye.